0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. We have you now for an hour, and in the studio with me is Dr Laura. Good morning.
2: Hi, Dr Shane. Good morning. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you guys too. You're a bit perky. For a cold morning, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry, sometimes uh, you know this morning I was a bit tired, and I just get surprised by the perk on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Dr. Linden.
3: Good morning, happy Sunday.
1: Less Perky, oh. good.
2: <laughs> perky, perkyish,
1: and and the embodiment of Perky, Dr. Ray. Good day, Dr.
4: <laughs> oh, Thank <there> you, <laughs> go. <That's> very perky.
2: <laughs> and the winner is.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm going to turn you down.
4: Yeah, no, I I, I I just got back from from two and a half weeks in the states. Yeah, uh, great seeing family went to a fantastic conference in new york but i still don't get the sugar and the bread thing i just sugar and bread yeah the, the, you know it, it, like food in the u.s just, oh you mean yeah. sugar in bread yeah sugar in bread.
2: everything is so sweet
3: so you're not yeah. perky you're just on a raging sugar high you know?
4: yeah so even though i got back tuesday i think i'm still coming down
1: <laughs> <to that. laughs> well you know there's this great food in the u.s you just gotta know where to go
4: yeah that's, that's true yeah, yeah mexican food slow pit barbecue things that aren't common here yeah yeah.
1: i've had great food especially well you know we spend a lot of time in santa barbara and uh, Ah, mexican food there's amazing so anyway we better move on the food shows next this is a science show (laughs) um dr laura why don't you start us off with some news
2: well this is this this was quite big in the news this week but it's kind of news but also just a fun fact at the same time but i feel like i need to enlighten everybody with this is that tyrannosaurus rexes they can't run So, you know, think back to Jurassic Park and just alleviate your nightmare of the scene where the T-Rex is chasing the Jeep that physically cannot happen unless maybe the Jeep was in first gear, manual, and trawling along really, really slowly.
4: Wait, so so the most recent Jurassic Park movie, that really unrealistic part in the movie, not when the Tyrannosaurus (laughs) Rex is chasing the person, but because the person's wearing high heels and running... (laughs) So that might actually meant she, she might have actually had a chance about running the T-Rex. She
2: might have had a good chance. Mm. Well, so there's a um, brand new study published in PRJ this week. For the first time, they've sort of calculated in, by computer simulation, many different factors. So this was a team from the University of Manchester. And the limiting factor for a T-Rex is its skeletal mass. And so if it runs over 20 kilometers for an, an hour, its legs will physically snap beneath it. Because yeah. of it's weight. It's weight yeah, distribution. Yeah, it's weight on top of the skeletal mass. So put that in perspective with, you know, Usain Bolt who's running at 44k an hour.
3: Yep.
2: If the T-Rex is 20k an hour... If you're a decent runner, you can totally outrun that T-Rex.
1: See, this is one of these science facts that you know. It's this, a fun fact. I just don't <laughs> want to believe it. Yeah, <laughs> like it's just. It, it just. It just I just think no. Place. I. It's I want to Well, because when I talk to certain um people from certain religious groups that believe dinosaurs and, and people were around at the same time, I like the idea that T-Rex can eat people. <laughs>
2: Well, did actually... this you well,
1: could eat slow people. <laughs> just just the, people. the
4: old and the young. Yeah. Yeah, and once you get to middle age, you're okay. Was, wasn't a T-Rex <laughs> also a carrion eater? Eating, yeah, yeah, did stuff. So that's not moving. So something else did the work? Exactly.
2: Yeah. So this actually turns on its head that it's actually not really a predatory animal, at least anything that's, you know, fast-paced oh. in any way.
1: I do not like this news at
4: all. <laughs> The well, T. Rex is the most feared dinosaur in the world. Yeah. But 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 sauropods <laughs> aren't exactly fast moving. Yeah yeah. Diplodocus. Uh, yeah. The whole name says yeah. I
1: move slow. Yeah. yeah. Yes. All right.
2: Sorry sorry to bust dreams there, guys. Yeah, that's, well, you bring in a depressing news this
3: morning. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: I think uh, what you know, watch this space. I say, watch this space. We'll see what happens. Yeah. You <laughs> so never yeah, know. true
3: that turns out to be. Hey,
1: funny. look at the Brontosaurus. For a moment there, it was out. people said it was just a baby apatosaurus and now they've definitely confirmed
4: that it was a different species. It's kind of amazing that people are just coming to this conclusion now given how long they've 15 years Rex later Gallus and, and <laughs> how yeah. long biomechanics has been around that somebody's only thought to do the force balance now Yep. Yeah. Mm. apparently
2: it's, it's been widely debated amongst pal- paleontologists for decades is that right oh. Oh. A hot yeah. topic for these guys Yeah, yeah. see
1: I, I love it when a science focused group of people in the room just don't want to believe science yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> it wrecks our childhood myths <laughs> Anyway, uh, Dr. Lyndon, what do you got for us?
3: Well, uh, a story that caught my eye on Thursday uh, from the Journal of Experimental Biology was one of those stories that I was like, oh, I can't wait to tell this on the radio, but first I better call my dad. Is there, can I just ask,
1: is there a journal of non-experimental biology? I
3: haven't come across it. (laughs) Uh, I was excited. That's like a journal
4: of biology of things we already know. We just thought we'd write them down for the sake of it. (laughs) (laughs)
5: That's right.
3: (laughs) Journal of knowledge, journal of experiments. Well, maybe this one is because they actually do a physical experiment Mm -hmm. rather than a computer simulation, perhaps. Anyway, well, this Mm. story that came out this week in the Experimental Biology Journal is all about fish. It's about fishing, right? So... These biologists have been interested in a long time for figuring out why some fish get caught and why some fish don't get caught. And um, one of the things that they've been trying to do, this is researchers from the Natural History Survey in Illinois, they've been breeding these two populations of bass, largemouth bass, for about 40 years. They've been breeding two populations, one that are easy to get caught and one that are hard. So they've just been, like, breeding out all the ones that are tricky to get caught and all the ones that just jump on the line easily. And now what they've done is they're trying to figure out if if that's, if it's worked. Okay, so they've done all these tests on these fish. They had about 88 different fish, and they tested them for their stress levels. So they pulled them out of the water for three minutes and then chucked them back in and checked their cortisol levels to see how stressed they were. Okay. Right? And they checked to see how kind of brave they were. So they put them in a tank with some ferns and stuff, and then they saw how long they'd go out into the open water and come back into the the, the Ferny yeah. area, and then they went fishing. These guys from Illinois just spent a summer catching fish in the name of science. Pretty sweet. So did we you did get the get wrong job.
4: job. Yeah, I know, right? Just...
3: <laughs> so they spent uh, spent a summer fishing two hours a day in these special tanks, and they found out that the different populations they thought would show different results actually didn't. They're two mm. fish you kind of. They didn't breed catchability or non-catchability into these fish. But what they found instead was that stress levels had a big impact on whether the fish wanted to get caught or didn't want to get caught. So if you're a stressed-out fish, you're more likely to freak out when you see a lure and not go for it. Whereas if you're a bit of a not-so-stressed not fish with lower cortisol levels, you're going to jump on that, Sounds, jump on that line. Sounds yeah. smart fish or not smart fish. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sort of has implications. Be afraid. It has implications, I guess, to if fish get outfished then it's only going to be the stressed out fish left in the water which is interesting
1: yeah yeah. Mm. probably not good eating no you
3: don't want the stressed out fish
1: you don't want the stressed out
3: fish that'd be tough and and gritty Mm. Mm.
1: interesting Mm. stuff well yeah because we we really don't know much about that i think it's an area where our knowledge of how fish interact and how fish you know like some fish are easier to catch than others we don't really know why exactly yeah yeah. and
3: it does have implications for populations over time Mm. so it's a pretty good excuse to go fishing in the summer.
1: Oh, look, I might have to do some experiments of my own <laughs> to confirm that. Um, love, love a bit of fishing,
4: Dr. Ray, Dr. Shane. Um, I, uh, I came across an article that, that just came out this week in Earth System Dynamics, and I actually want to read the title and then I'll talk about what it is. It says "Young People's Burden: Requirements of Negative CO2 Emissions." And and so this is this is quite an interesting uh, article on, on on climate change, for a couple of reasons. One of them though is is just the way it's couched. Mm. young people's burden. So mm. we're to, the article is not... given up on us. Well, <laughs> in, in, in a sense, it's saying it's looking at climate change and not going, well, you know, are we going to have temperature rise? We have temperature rise now on our, our global average. I think it's about 1.3 Celsius based on what this article says. Um, but it's about what this means for a future generation. I mean, w- when w- it's not about a, a climate science deniers change. It's saying, "Hey, mm. have you? What happens if you couch this problem in what's the next generation's cost for dealing with CO two for climate change?" Uh, and, and and it's really interesting because it's suggesting um, based on climate models, uh, and it's work at a uh, Columbia University and, and quite a few other places, uh, led by. Um, a very well-known climate scientist named Hansen. Uh, it, it's actually saying, "Well, what's the cost if if we let things run away?" And and this article even suggests two C is optimistic mm-hmm. and probably not what we need to do. If the cost is really, we need to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, or even to keep it lower, because greenhouse gas emissions are still accelerating. What's the cost to the next generation? I think the estimate he had in here for. Just pulling CO2 out of the inter, uh, atmosphere. So this is the idea of negative CO2 emissions. We're looking at the next generation might have a $500 trillion cost. Well. Just to, to keep that mm, from running away. Mm. The argument being if action is done sooner, things like reforestation and changes can agriculture can have actually not just go from reducing greenhouse gas, but actually sequestering carbon and mm. natural very cost effective methods as opposed to pulling things out of the atmosphere in a large-scale chemical process, yeah. which is horrendously yeah, expensive yeah, yeah. and, and inefficient. Um, it, it, I mean, it was a little interesting to go, oh, they're saying 2C. People are optimistic because people agreed to Paris, but that might not be enough. Yeah. And that if you look at things, the some of the slower feedback for where temperature happens, and, and I'm expecting um, yeah, we'll jump in and good. correct That's- me and stuff because <laughs> I'm not speaking in my expert area, but next to a climate change scientist so on. Um, yeah. um, but but just couched it in where our global temperature in the last time the Earth hit this temperature sea level was sixty seven meters higher. Mm. Uh, no, we're not saying oh sea level should be that, but where we are and how the Earth's dealing with temperature. If you look at our past history, this is not a great indicator, and in that we actually need to understand a little bit more longer term study of what happens if we lose ice shelves, if things start to melt in a different way, and that there's actually still a lot of climate science for what's the bigger impact. Going in 50 years Maybe we don't know When we still need to study But uh the reason why This is really interesting It's a very interesting article In that it's It's very detailed They they have their modeling It's very well referenced um, It's also pitched So perhaps not Every, you don't have to be a client scientist expert to follow it all. And, and the reason why, and I'll finish up quickly, is that there's actually, um, this was inspired, and in, in, it's also referenced in the article, there's a, there's a, a court case that's going to come to court in 2018 in the U.S. where it's 21 young people. Are suing the U.S. government arguing that their inaction on climate change is unconstitutional for what it's going to affect for later generations. And while you think, okay, that sounds a little silly, the court case has already gotten a lot of attention. It had three intervening agents, which were petroleum companies saying, oh, you can't possibly let this mm. case come to court. They weren't the complainants or they weren't involved in the suit. They just intervened already and a judge ruled and said, no, we're going to go to, to go to court on this. So this is actually a, A fact-based approach or scientific-based approach on what would the cost be to a future generation. And and instead of an argument in climate change about deniability, the term sustainability, one of its more, you know, the definitions I learned was using the resources in a way for our generation that we don't uh, bring into risk the resources for future ones. And if you think about climate change in a sustainability context like that, you go, oh my gosh. Yeah, not good. Uh, not not good. good. Not good. Um,
3: yeah. It's interesting. So James Hansen is quite a well-known climate scientist. He was one of the early proponents of the Gaia hypothesis, mm. which is quite a famous way of thinking about how the Earth kind of looks after itself. And he's pretty political as a scientist. He's been arrested for protesting before and and all these kinds of things. And I find it interesting that he he's published a paper that's kind of economic, a bit in its nature, in a, an Earth science journal. I wonder if it would have packed more punch or been looked at in a different way, if he would taken it to an economic journal or yeah. in a different... If he's communicating it in a, in a fairly general way, perhaps it might have had a different uh, response if he'd put it somewhere else. I don't know, DeRay, De what do you think? Um, about?
4: That's interesting. I, I mean, I tried to get through the, the 40 pages of the paper and no, I didn't read the appendices. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it was... A lot of it was around climate estimates and the the comments about... Economics and sequestration and things were probably a little less. I mean, the comment in the abstract was things like, well, sequestration and capture is kind of an untested Mm. or is risk, is risky. And I'm thinking, well, from a chemical process standpoint, how it's used. And by the way, if you say no, we shouldn't be using carbon capture and storage because we should just be using less fossil fuels, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But uh, a, a lot of the uses for carbon capture that seem to have potential aren't Direct coal recovery—they might be in an industry that mm-hmm. actually produces CO2 as a waste—but all of that technology is based on dealing with concentrations of carbon that are very much constant, much higher yeah. and enriched yeah, yeah, exactly. over what's in the atmosphere. And the yeah, idea yeah. of applying that to the atmosphere itself—different stuff, yeah. very different. I
3: suppose mm-hmm. there's huge amounts of uncertainty too, not just in mm-hmm. that component of things, but also in future climate models. Is yeah. uncertainty everywhere in in looking at that kind of a system? So you've yeah. got to be careful about how you. How you say the certainty of, of what's mm-hmm. likely to happen in the future?
1: And it's not just CO two.
3: Well, there yeah, that's true too. Mm, you know, I was going to yeah. bring
1: that one back. Now, uh, just before we go to some music, folks, I wanted to mention that the Australian premiere of a new documentary called "Food Evolution" is coming up at Cinema Nova on Thursday, the third of August at six thirty. Um, the film was uh, narrated by some guy we had on here recently. His name is Neil deGrasse Tyson. I haven't heard of the. Oh wow! Uh, I don't know who that is. Uh, and it features Dr. Alison Van. I think I've got that wrong. Um, uh, she's agricultural genomic specialist originally from Melbourne, actually. She's now over at uh, University of California, Davis. And it explores the, the science and emotion are, are all around GM food, which I think is something we've talked about a lot on the, over the years here. Um, Anyway, uh, if you go to uh, worldwideweb.foodevolutionmovie.com, you can find all the details. It's being the screenings being presented as part of um, uh, National Science Week. So anyway, um, and Dr. Allison will be there after the film for a chat. So that might be something good to go to. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back uh, with our first uh, guest in just a moment. We're talking about self-healing materials, and not people or animals or anything like that. These are artificial ones. You'll Three you're listening to three triple r in the studio with us now is dr luke connell and he's a senior lecturer and a Vesky innovation fellow at in the department of chemical and biomolecular engineering at the university of melbourne welcome to triple r luke hi yeah now, you're working on uh, something that uh, Lyndon here is very excited about because she breaks phones a lot, apparently, <laughs> we heard during the break. Um, broke her husband's phone just recently, or well, partner's phone, yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, quite spectacularly.
1: Fit of rage? Yes.
3: No, just an accident. <laughs> <laughs> just
1: a Now, this, this is the whole idea of um, self-healing materials. So it just brings up to speed a bit on, on where these things have been because we, I've heard about this for, like, I think, oh, 15 years people have been talking about this stuff, you know, self-healing materials, and, and yet we haven't really seen them in the marketplace. So
6: where it, where's it gone over the last couple of decades? Yeah, sure. So I think... Um the big drive in the, in the past, I guess, has been a lot on, in cars, I, I would say, in like, um, in the coatings of outside of cars. And that's one yeah. of the reasons why we're interested in it as well. But, um, it hasn't really, I haven't seen, like you're right. I think I haven't really seen something being been translated into an actual product. And, and I'm not saying that we are there yet either. We're sort of still pure research as well, but yeah. we, we have developed, I guess, a, a slightly new, take on it, a new, new way to do this. Um, and we, we think this could be a, a way that we can push this forward.
1: Yeah, I think I, I remember reading something a few years about, it, especially for fighter aircraft and so forth, where very small fractures... Um, need to be essentially repaired, you know, and I, I think there's elaborate mechanisms for monitoring the the integrity of the windshields of these aircraft and so forth, just to see if there's any microfractures. And they, yeah. they, there was a, l- a lot of interest in the idea of making materials that could self repair. And so, in, in terms of, I mean, what's the approach? I mean, what's the idea? Do you how do you make a material self repairing? It seems as though the structure is already there.
6: And yeah, so so the, the approach that we have, we we. We chemists at heart, I guess we, we look at the chemistry of this, and um, what we've developed is a it's a, essentially a covalent bond that will break and reform, and it's doing this all the time. Mm-hmm. And we can tune this chemistry to say t- to tell it when to do this, and then we then um, create a, a self healing material that, that can do that.
5: Okay,
4: all right. Look, to me and my understanding of self healing materials, that's a pretty Different approach. I mean, when when self-healing materials, say for polymers or that you might make a plastic out of, a lot of times the whole idea was, well, we know we're going to get a crack, a micro crack locally. So what we'll do is we'll include some polymer that hasn't cured, yeah, yeah. that hasn't <laughs> formed yet, it hasn't polymerized. It leaks. And in. and and and, and yeah. you know when when that crack happens, maybe we'll have a little capsule of it, and it'll crack, and so we'll eventually polymerize or or we'll, it'll, the glue will finally crack open and react locally because we form that crack. But what you're talking about is a material that has that intrinsically in the material that's formed.
6: Yeah, that's that's right. a really
4: different approach.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think you're right because these other approaches are really, it's sort of a a, a one, you get one chance to heal. Mm, mm. So once it does that microcapsule or whatever that mechanism is, it heals, then you've lost that again. But for us, we're actually doing it all the time. So it's it's intrinsic in the material so we can always self-heal you don't just get that one shot at, at healing it's always doing it and, and
1: you, so you're talking about individual bonds doing some of this i mean what's the capacity in terms of a crack so say i get a crack that's three millimeters long which in terms of individual bonds is just monstrous right sure. that is yeah. huge i mean how fast and how effective can that that crack repair be
6: yeah that's the, that's one of the challenges here i think uh, in particular and um that, that is one of the limitations in this, of this, you know, of any techni- uh, technology. It's sort of, you've scratched away absolutely uh, material. So how do you replace that material as well? Um, and so we have developed in mechanisms to, to, um, create a, a flow, I guess, or a chemistry. So, so this is, um, based on water. Water is critical to this chemistry. So mm-hmm. we can actually put it into a humid environment and increase the rate of this exchange of this, oh, okay. of this um, yep. chemistry. So that will actually, partly um increased the the um the scope it's still mm. a challenge to be actually really get to the big big cracks and um and so that's it's always going to be a challenge to do that mm.
3: as someone who knows little to nothing about chemistry uh, is there a natural sort of something similar that exists in nature that you can compare this work to or is this a brand new chemistry work
6: well the the, the chemistry uh, is is pretty new that you know um well, not new I would say it' is, it's been it's, it's around for a long time but the chemistry uh, so I, I sort of think of it as you know skin is a is a good example of of uh, uh, a self healing material it's a it's totally different um tech um, uh chemistry and technique the skin uses to what we are using but it's a sort of a you know that's the sort of inspiration that we we take from um trying to make an artificial skin as it was a really cool um concept mm. that we're trying to follow as well mm-hmm.
4: so if it's happening all the time, this forming and reforming breaking of bonds, while it can't tackle a three millimeter crack do you have the ability to deal with um, slow timescale changes of shape or I don't know, uh, adding a layer of material a little bit later and where you might have problems in bonding for like an adhesive would it actually be able to over time build strength where other adhesives might not
6: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I think that's, yeah, we haven't really thought about it in that way. So the, the, um, the chemistry that we've developed in, um, is, is based on 3D printing as well. So we actually 3D print this self-healing material. Um, and so what you just commented on is, is sort of intrinsic in 3D printer. So it is layering of, of the structures. So we actually use that chemistry to adhere those several layers Mm. in the, in the 3D printing. Um, and so the idea is to, you know, if you have this three millimeter crack in, in say your your phone, you know, could you just take this phone and put it in a three D printer, and just print this material inside this three three millimeter crack to actually overcome some of those challenges as well? Mm. And
1: in terms of um, the material itself that you're using, I mean, what what's it like? Is it like a, a you know more like a metal or more like a plastic or what is you know because that gives you an idea of what you could use it for? What?
6: Yeah, what well, it's it? it's very soft at the moment, but the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, we. The chemistry is yeah, it's quite versatile. So we we are trying to increase the strength of this and increase the clarity. And so we are, for different applications, we think we can um, tune the chemistry. It's mm-hmm. it's not um it's not just stuck to a soft material or a hard material. We we can incorporate this into 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 different sort of materials. Mm-hmm.
3: And you you might not want to answer this, but if you sort of had to put a timeline on when you think this sort of technology might become operational. Is that something that you can answer or not really um,
6: so i guess i 'm an academic, so I like to come up with ideas and 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 see if we can do things rather than necessarily make the product <laughs> um, so we it's put a timeline. I think it, it's, you know, it's not biomedical. It's not um, medicine. So it's, I think that the, the timeline of things, it could be quite fast if we get the funds and the, and the person to drive it. Uh, I'm not sure of the person to drive the, mm. the, the product innovation. I, I, I like to come up with the idea of the, at the bottom end of things. Right? Uh, that's mm. all
1: right. We, sometimes it's good to keep the scientists in yeah. the room and, you know, put
6: the food under the door and the
1: ideas <laughs> come out. That's, I mean, Ray only comes out on a Sunday to, yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, otherwise <laughs> we just put the food under the door. Yeah. Luke, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, as I say, these things are been talked about for a long time so this new very new different approach um, to get going about is very interesting and hopefully it'll, it'll be fruitful and we'll get yep. some, um, get some good stuff uh, coming out. So good luck with it and thanks again. Thanks, good to be here. Dr. Luke Connell is a senior lecturer and Vesky Innovation Fellow in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Mm. We're gonna take a break for, uh, some music folks and when we come back we're talking to a couple of gentlemen who, are putting on this amazing virtual reality tour and open house at, um, anyway, we'll, we'll tell you where in a minute you're listening to R. Three, triple ah. uh, welcome back everybody, you're listening to Triple R. If you're wondering uh, what that track was, it was by The Seabirds. And they actually have their debut album launch um, on the 23rd of July. What's the date today? Yes. It is the 23rd Close of July today. today. Um, oh, sorry, that was a question I thought you guys would jump <laughs> in and know. <laughs> that didn't it's work.
0: Ah,
1: so uh, Anyway, um, they're at uh, 3 p.m. today, actually, at the Grace Darling Hotel in Smith Street, Collingwood, um, with special guest Dave Arden. It's $10 at the door, but you get a free album, which... I'll just read that again. It's $10 at the door, but you get a free album. Good stuff. Good deal. Anyway, get along. Um, now, in the studio with us, we have Dr. Nick Van House and Dr. Angus Johnson, and they're both uh, here to talk to us about the ARC Centre for Bio-Nanoscience down there at the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Welcome to Triple R, guys.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, open house.
1: You're letting people into where they do the pharmacy stuff. Are you mad? <laughs> <laughs> Nick, um, why don't we start with you? I mean, what, what's uh, this? This is really to get people to be aware of some of the history here, isn't it? I think
0: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there is a strong history of um, uh, pharmacy uh, in Melbourne, mm-hmm. and um, um, it was once just known as the uh, Victorian College of Pharmacy. Yep. It used to be on Swanson Street, actually. Mm. And then it moved up to um, Parkfield, opposite the uh, Carlton football ground there. Um, people might see it when they drive down Royal Parade. And, um, yeah, this, so, uh, this, uh, this college, uh, it merged with, uh, Monash in 1992. And, um, since then they've built some amazing research facilities. And so now, they teach pharmacists and they train researchers and, uh, we've got some really, uh, some world-class facilities and some of the most, uh, well-known pharmacologists in the country as well. So. In,
1: in terms of the, the history of, of the role of pharmacy in Australia, I mean, give us a couple of examples of things that, you know, I don't think people think of Australia and they think of lawnmowers and the hills hoist and the bionic ear. I mean, in terms of pharmacy, what, what sort of big things have we done
0: for Australia? Uh, that's a, that's a really good question. I think probably one of the most well-known ones is, um, contributions to Relenza. Um, flu vaccine. So yeah. Um, yeah. And um, more recently, um, contributions to um uh, single shot uh, malaria treatments, for okay. example. Yep. So yeah, there's some p- pretty big um, contributions. Mm. Now the open house,
1: what what sort of? I mean, people I think have done a few of these. There was, I think there was, there was one at Triple R last year, which was pretty cool. Except it was on a Saturday and people were coming in on a Sunday. Still fun. Um well, <laughs> <I bet laughs> <I'm>, it was. <laughs> it was just a bit busier than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, but but what what um, what will people get to see when they come into the open house?
0: So so the biggest angle for us is that um, it's all about architecture in Melbourne and visiting mm. sites and space. Yeah. That you usually can't access. And we thought, well, let's do a little bit of a modern twist on this and a science twist and look at the architecture of a cell rather than the architecture of a building. So um using this VR technology that you'll hear about in a minute, no doubt, uh, we thought, why not just have people put on headsets, look around inside a cell and really experience a different kind of space, a, a very tiny space, mind you. So, so they will be the equivalent of like nanometers in size, so very small, and um, we'll be able to experience a, a different kind of environment. But then in addition to that... Um, we have a lot of other technologies that we'll be um, uh, 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 providing um, tours around um, in terms of lab spaces and, and the history as well, as yeah. we mentioned before.
1: Now, Angus, let's Talk a bit about the uh the
5: vr technology
1: i mean i I gotta ask you are you you a gamer that just pretends to be a scientist or a scientist that
5: pretends to be a gamer which i'm I'm, I'm actually neither because i don't play computer games at all um that's outrageous and 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 actually getting into it it was i was actually almost a little bit reticent to do it because i have a thing with um motion sickness and so i can't like (laughs) anything moving in front of me on the screen i I get a bit of motion sickness so when we first started collaborating with uh, the vr people who are um from UNSW, um, they're visual artists. With history in the game industry, um, I thought, oh, am I going to get this motion sickness? But mm-hmm. actually the improvements in VR are now to the stage where you can put these headsets on the frame rate so high. And, and one of the key things is being able to ground you in, uh, in motion. So if you walk around within the virtual reality space, it maps exactly to what you're seeing to your eye. So you don't actually mm. get this, this lag or this sort of difference between what you're, you're feeling and what you're seeing. Yeah. Um,
1: Cause I mean, that's so important. Cause I was reading the other day, I think. Women in particular are susceptible to this for some weird reason. I don't think anyone understands yet, but it's like double what it is for men in terms of getting sick. Mm. And you know, this is this basically seasickness without the sea, yeah. right? I mean, that's yeah. that's that's, that's exactly. what it is. Yeah. And um and I thought uh, so. So you you have a scenario you're talking about there where there's physical motion. Yep. As well as... So you're not just sitting there sort of no. moving a joystick and moving through a virtual world you no, no,
5: no. You're and And that's one of the key things is to being able to actually explore. And um, this is actually... So John McGee, who's from UNSW, he um, he talks about VR as an architectural space. So yep. sort of the link with what Nick was saying is that you want to allow people to explore and you want to explore at your own pace. And so what we've done um, with um, Rob Parton in Queensland... Um, we basically take electron microscopy image of a cell. So we take a number of really fine slices. So you basically stick the cell inside a microscope and a very sharp diamond knife takes a slice off. You take an image, take another slice off, mm. take an image. Um, and it'll do that basically overnight. We get thousands of images and those thousands of images basically get reconstructed into a three-dimensional model. And it's that three-dimensional <laughs> model that then people will be able to then walk through. And, and so there's this... Um, there's this space where you can stand on the surface of a cancer cell and you can see the sort of nanoparticle medicines that we're trying to develop to improve therapies. Uh, you can see how those are interacting with a real cell. It's not, it's not an imagination of what it might look like. It's an actual real cell. You can see the drug. It is a bit of an imagination of the nanoparticle, but um, that comes in slowly onto the surface of the partic- on to the surface of the cell and then you can see how they are interacting and, and allows us to understand how our Drugs are delivered better, mm. but also it um, allows people to see how these interactions are occurring.
1: That sounds fantastic. I mean, is there a is there a walkthrough scene by Raquel Welsh at any point? <laughs> I mean, not, I'm showing my quite. age. I'm showing my age, but you know, I mean, this sounds yeah. like fantastic voyage. It is, and uh, for for the younger audiences, in a space, mm. um, you know, where, where essentially you are you are physically going down. You're the size of a molecule, and you're exactly. Yeah, is so that, that the deal?
5: Yeah. yeah. So we have we actually have three different stages. So we have a stage of where you're. Um, you have a stage where you're standing on the surface of the mm. cell and you're about the size of the nanoparticle, so 40 nanometers, um about a thousandth the width of a human hair. Mm. Um, and then after you've explored on the surface of the cell, you can dive inside the cell. And so you dive inside the cell. And, and one of the things that I think we've been good at now, as scientists, is understanding how drugs behave in the whole body and how s- drugs are interacting with a particular protein. But what we haven't really explored is within the cell, the cell is almost like a body within itself. It has the stomach of the cell called lysosomes. Um, you have the brain, which is sort of the nucleus where all the DNA is. And so what we can um, do is we can take people on that voyage through the cell and you can put your head inside a lysosome and you can see the drug trapped in there. And, and what we want to be able to do as scientists is change the way the drugs go through throughout the cell to improve their yeah. effectiveness and you can put your head inside this lysosome and and it's one of these things that you actually put your head inside the lysosome and I, I get so immersed in the experience that I actually feel I'm a little bit drowning inside the lysosome. Right, right. You have to you want to pop your head up so you're just a little bit outside that, that level of water. <laughs> and and even putting your hand inside some of these objects because you can see where your hands are as well. It feels cold when you put it inside the nucleus, and it, it isn't cold because it's just completely your brain yeah, brain yeah. playing tricks on you. But the the realism of the environment really allows you to really feel like you're there, and so yeah, you're shrunk down to. Um, Only a couple of nanometers in size, but um, you've got this architectural tour of the cell that you can experience.
2: That's incredible! I can't believe you guys have modelled this on a real cell, and I really want to do it. By Mm. the way, Um, when people come through the door and they sign up, how long does the tour take? And are they kind of spoke? Are they? Do you guys speak through? You know, this is the lysosome. This is the nucleus. So everybody who's not a scientist knows what's going on.
5: Yeah. So we've actually introduced interactive elements so you can there's a trigger on the controller and you can touch the different objects and then there's a voiceover that comes in. This
2: is in the a, nucleus now? This is
5: the nucleus, this is the um, this is the lysosomes when you're on the surface of the cell you can touch different receptors and so there's a particular set receptor, people might have heard of HER2, it's a particular type of breast cancer um, receptor um, and so you can touch that and when you touch the HER2 receptor it tells you a little bit about the HER2 receptor and so we, we've actually, um, we We've done a little bit of testing in undergraduate students as well to see, like, this is an outreach aid, but it's also hopefully a teaching aid. Yeah, I was
2: thinking, you've got to get the Melbourne Uni and just students GTAC through this. I mean, I want to do it. Ray, do you want to do it? I'm sure everyone wants to do it. Is it just for Open Day or...?
5: Oh yeah, so so we have it for open house. We we're actually going to have open um, house. yeah yeah uh, open house. Um, we we, we will have you <laughs> mentioned that actually yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, as you say, I think on the twentieth of August we have um open house as well. I think um Mitz has open day at um, Parkville. I think another university, yeah, Melbourne Uni. That's might Melbourne be open University the open day. Yeah, the 20th so of August. Yeah, yeah, so just M- some other uni- university so. down the road. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yes, the um, across, the road, yeah, there, yeah. Across, across the road. Yeah, um, across <laughs> the road. i've heard of it. Yeah, so I mean, one of the limitations at the moment is throughput. So it probably, people want about, when we originally envisaged it, the first version of it, people spent about five minutes in there and got bored. Um, Now that we've started testing it, we really have to pull people out. And there was a there's this testing that we're doing with some students and one student said, oh, can I stay in there a bit longer? And I said, oh, it's the end of the day, you can stay in there. Came in about 45 minutes later and you're still in there exploring and trying to go to different areas on the surface of the cell. Um, But yeah, we've been trying to test to see whether it's just a, a fancy tool or whether it can actually help people with their understanding, because you get a much different spatial awareness of what's happening. And so the, we're just in the process of writing a paper um, about it, but it appears we get about a 50% improvement on exam performance as well mm-hmm. um, when people have done the virtual reality To get the, the perspective of how things are interconnected and uh, rather than just sort of the dry two dimensional textbook version, you actually experience what's
1: happening. uh, I mean, there's, there's no real surprise there though. I mean, we, we know how we remember things and we know what experiences we remember Mm. in our lives and pictures in textbook aren't one of them, which is why you have to read them 50 times before it sinks in. Mm. But you know, you, you walk into an environment and you see a certain environment, you'll remember it 30 years later just because of the way we experience. As you say, it's not just, it's not just sight. Mm. And I know uh, NASA, we, we had one of the NASA engineers in here earlier, I think it was earlier this year or late last year, talking about their new hybrid hybrid reality mm. scenario where they have physical objects that you interact with and, and lasers monitor mm. those objects in real time to, to link you picking up a fake hammer yep. to the virtual reality interaction of the yep. fake hammer. And you know, that stuff, you know, just mm. a l- little bit further, but the the whole thing of, you know, it's cold, all these things, you know, yeah. you can do. It's just amazing. You do remember it. Mm. Um, Nick, uh, I think it sounds like this, this guy's good at selling your open house stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it
0: speaks for itself, but he does yeah. a pretty good job as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, it just sounds fantastic. I, I can't imagine. A scenario where you guys couldn't be bringing in school groups, you know, en masse just all day long, because the amount they could, kids could learn and retain just 15 minutes in this mm. thing, looking at this about cells, compared to, you know, in, in one of L- Dr. Laura's lectures. You know, I mean, really, <laughs> the, the comparison just, yeah, you know, I'm sure they're good, but you know, wa- walking inside a cell, I know, you can't I compete, know, I can't, compete, can't with that. compete with that, and
2: also for open house, you know, sort of Peter McCallum, V Triple the Doherty, Walter and Eliza Hall are all doing these walk through tours, yeah, but, yeah. well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. come it's on, I
1: mean, which one do you want to go yeah. to? I want to <laughs> walk through a cell. <laughs> well, I can just imagine you standing out in front of the, the, the Doherty Institute. Yeah, just saying, just go up so, to uh, well, Gunther Road. Or just <laughs> just sort of trying to spook people in and, and say, <laughs> where are they? Oh, they're down there, bloody virtual reality. Exactly. Mips. God damn it. Yeah.
5: Yeah. But, but it's also something that we're hoping... Um, in the not-too-distant future, the cost of the virtual reality setups is really coming down. And so the one that we're using is about a $1,000. So it's it's relatively accessible to people. Certainly gamers at home are starting to have them. And so we're wanting to try and release this to the public so people who do have home VR setups will be able to experience it as well um but the key thing for us there is that not just re- releasing a pretty virtual reality space that people can walk through but to actually have it so that we know that the engagement's right so when you touch things you do learn things rather than just yeah. say oh yeah. i just walked through a cell i don't really remember anything now,
1: yeah. do you do you have complimentary vomit bags just in case
5: we don't have them because, Ooh, I, I, be I, as, as I said, I can, I was the guinea pig and I was fine in it. So, um, yeah, really the, the way it's improved, it's, it's, yeah. it's pretty good. I
0: actually. know, a, I know a couple of people who could test that for you. <laughs> they're, they're on a boat for two minutes and they're throwing <laughs> up off the back. So. That, that's, that's me. Oh, so. okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're probably a good test. Well, if um, anyone's worried, we've actually got projections as well. So at least if you're not, you don't have the headset on, you can see it in, in a massive scale all uh, around you as well. I so hate to say it, Nick, but yeah. it's the projections I'm concerned about. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> ah, boom, boom.
1: Um, look, uh, I suppose people can go to openhousemelbourne.org if they want details um, and, strong, and yep. look up the History of Pharmacy and Drug Development in Australia and the Monash Institute for Pharmaceutical Sciences. Uh, Nick Vanhouse and Angus Johnson, thanks so much for coming in. This sounds very exciting. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will get along. Um, you do need to book people because the tours are limited to 15 per session. So I suspect uh, you guys are going to book up pretty fast. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much for having us. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements and then we'll be back in a moment with a little bit more news before we finish up.
0: Three, triple. triple.
1: Yeah, you are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein to Go-Go. We've got about, I don't know, eight minutes to go. We thought we'd give you a little bit more news. Lyndon, you've been looking at uh, some giant storms and MCGs full of sand or something or
3: other. Oh. Yeah, well, that was like, that was the was most exciting line? video. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I was, I came across this paper that had come out from uh, UNSW in Sydney earlier in the week about, do you remember that big East Coast low that hit in June last year? It sort of went all the way down from Queensland to Tasmania, that image of the, mm. the pool that had fallen into the sea. I don't know mm-hmm. if anybody remembers yeah, yeah, that Yeah, I remember
1: one? the pool in the sea. Yeah, the pool yep. in the sea. Because it's that, that thing where you say, you know, you live right near the sea and you still near the pool. Exactly, well, screw yeah. screw you. Your pool fell into the sea.
3: You felt a bit bad for them, <laughs> But not that Not bad, a lot. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I <laughs> yeah, remember that. That one. <laughs> yeah. So a team of engineers from UNSW have conducted the world's most extensive study into storm impacts to have a look and see what this storm did along the hmm. coastline. They looked at about 177 k's along the coast of Sydney, and they got to use the coolest tech. They used drones. They used jet skis. They used quad bikes. They used planes. They used... All
4: right, the- in, in fairness, the only thing that's tech there that is new was the drone. Jet skis... <laughs> yeah, but- Okay, you, Mara, you, You're talking to someone who does most of your research in a library. sit on a, a computer,
3: okay.
6: yeah, on a it computer every exciting. day <laughs> yeah, and me me thought, too. you guys are doing it right.
3: you got to do... I've just picked studies of research that I thought that sounds really fun. I'm like, fun. you want to go fishing? I want to go fishing and, and I want to learn how to fly a drone and I I kind of want to go on a jet ski. And so they <laughs> <laughs> did all of this. All at once. <laughs> all at once. <laughs> yeah, fishing
1: yes. rod in one hand, drone controller in the other and just... Hanging on to the jet ski with your thighs. Yeah, Multitasking. Somebody, yeah,
3: yeah. Yes, that's what I want to do. So they—it was, it was a really extensive look. It was the most extensive look that has ever been done on coastal erosion. And this storm was really interesting because this, the waves came in from a slightly different direction to what they normally do, and that's mm-hmm. why the impact was so much bigger, because areas that were normally protected were not so protected because right. the waves were coming from the east as opposed to from the southeast. So they found that... The shoreline moved 22 metres over three days as the result of this storm. 22 metres? 22 metres. Along
1: the shore, along the shore, not in, along.
3: No, in. Like, inn. the shore became 22 metres closer.
1: 22 metres. Yeah. That's, that's more than I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it would be maybe five, but no. 22. Well,
3: the, at the worst point. Worst point. Yeah, and it was, they have a long-term monitoring site at the beach where that, um, the pool, pool got rocked yep. in, got knocked in, and it was the most extreme event that they've had in about, since the 1970s. And it was 11.5, million cubic metres of sand, which is seven MCGs full seven of sand. MCGs. Seven MCGs. MCGs. And we're talking to the top. To the top, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not to the, not, not not just to the top the, of the goalposts. Yeah, yeah. To the, <laughs> yeah. to the top. Yeah, so this... This exciting work with all of this, okay, not so new tech, but exciting for me, tech uh, is going to be really (laughs) helpful for monitoring, for modelling, sorry, how coastal erosion might happen in the future. So it's a lot of new information that's now going to improve the next generation of models, which I thought was pretty cool.
1: That is cool stuff. Hmm. Now, Ray, you've got some news, and just for the listeners out there, when he says tuna, he means
4: tuna.
2: Good clarification. Go.
4: Is that your punchline
3: as well? Shane's just stealing no, everyone's. No,
4: uh, this is uh. just making fun of my accent. Um, so. Tuna or tuna uh, <laughs> is, is the fish, the bluefin fish. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is actually researchers that have looked at the, so the lymphatic system in people or or, or in mammals is actually uh, used for immune response. You know, it, it's a big deal. You know, if you get a snake bite, that's why you wrap the limb because the venom can transport during through the lymphatic system. It's kind it's,
2: of a big deal. Yeah,
4: <laughs> I, but actually, so tuna, uh, bluefin, uh, and mackerel. I think we're okay on mackerel there. Mac use great. it actually. Well, so they use the lymphatic system for the same purpose, but they use it for something else. And this is wild. So in 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 bluefin tuna, um, the, well the, the, the lymphatic vessels actually go through the muscles in the dorsal fin and are used basically as a hydraulic pump to make that dorsal fin rigid. And very quickly not rigid. And so because these are large swimmers and they're high-performance swimmers, they can turn, they can maneuver, they can go fast. And so the ability to make the dorsal fin rigid and turn and, and, and flex very quickly is, is, is what makes these fish such great – one of the things that makes them such great swimmers. Nobody thought the lymphatic system would be used for that. Mm, yeah, why? And, and mm. so it's, it's just a, it, it, looking at the, – they dissected them and looked and what. What's this doing here? Normally, it's for immune system response, and and so the the perspective on this was wait not just is is it used the lymphatic system was doing this they actually kind of you know it, it was this insight into how to get that fin to stay rigid and basing it on a hydraulic pump system, and and bluefin are about the same size as aquatic robots,
1: mm-hmm.
4: and so they actually think this might be an inspiration for how to design aquatic robots and higher performance with kind of this dorsal fin control. By 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 using an internal pumping system, and it's just nobody went, went the bluefin tuna is using this for a lymphatic system.
2: Wait, this is massive news. Take your immunology textbook now. Go to chapter one where it says lymphatic system, and then just put a footnote and P.S. Also, in tuna or mackerel, moves the fin. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. what did they think moved the fin before?
4: Well, well just... so most fins are moved by by muscles, and, and 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 so and and in blue, if you if you cut up in a, a bluefin, you'll see muscle in the fin. And it's just the lymphatic system is actually interdigitated in the muscle Mm. because Mm. the muscle can can, can contract, but the lymphatic system allows that fin to stay rigid without requiring the muscle to work. So if you could get that
3: in the robots, that would be new tech.
4: I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Excited, yeah, <sorry>.
1: exciting tech. <laughs> Excited tech. But, uh, I, the, the part uh, in all this that sort of surprises me when I hear about that is I, I, I suppose I never imagined the lymphatic, in system, the lymphatic system being able to respond that fast. That That's sort of what surprises me is that, it, you know, I, I know it does an important job and so forth, but we're talking about responding very, very fast to do this kind of
4: mechanical well, work. I, I think it's, it allows it to keep it... Um it's a uh, constant pressure, right? Okay. So the muscle doesn't have to work to keep That's it rigid. It's Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it is set up the the way the fibers are set up it, it, that, that that structure will actually let it flex left and right mm. by small changes in pressure. Mm. Mm. Very cool stuff. Uh,
1: well, uh, very quickly. Mosquitoes are being released all over the world.
2: Mosquitoes are being... It's, it's not new to us all. Taking mosquitoes, making them sterile with, sterile with Wolbachia. It's part of the Eliminate Dengue pro, program where we, you know, mosquitoes, we want to make them sterile so they don't transport, you know, they don't transmit nasties, dengue, chicken, virus, Zika. But in California right now... The parent company of Google's behind it. They've just released biggest US field trial, trial ever. Twenty million mosquitoes are going to be released. They're infected with Wolbachia, so they won't be able, so they will be sterile. Mm-hmm. And this is to bring down mosquitoes numbers, so California can stay ahead of any Zika, you know, or you know Zika, chikungunya, dengue um, transmitted um, pathogens.
1: It's it's interesting. So what happens to the other mosquitoes? They just they're yeah, going to be overwhelmed. Competed? Yeah, overwhelmed.
2: Overwhelmed. We're talking so, about a lot. Yeah, tw- 20 million is a lot. They're all males, so they're, you know, so people in California are going to notice that there's a lot more mosquitoes around, but they're males, so, so they, don't don't, bite- they don't bite you. Yeah. It's only the women that bite you. So, you know, so you don't mind male mosquitoes don't going around. I not say anything,
4: Dr. Yeah. Ray. I was actually more worried about you. Well,
0: than, uh, we could get
1: ourselves into a lot of trouble on air if we say something in response and they to get that. And
2: they're gonna they're gonna mate with all the females, they're gonna have sterile aches that aren't gonna hatch, and then the mosquito numbers, hopefully, are gonna crash through the floor. Zika doesn't stand a chance in California.
1: Fantastic. Well, just, yeah, I always wonder about the other effects. I've always said <laughs> it on there, you know, oh, nothing else is going along in the, you know, the ecology is not affected. Well, but. This know. is
2: only one species of mosquito. It's the nasty mm. one. It's the main transmitter okay. of the diseases. There's 3,000 other species of mosquitoes. Mm, Animal okay. Wolbachia is naturally found in a All massive of the, yeah, proportion yeah, yeah, of yeah. insects so anyway.
4: Birds will have other things to eat, yeah. and frogs will still be okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll. Do you accept it? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Uh, Maybe a bit more information, but no, it's it's good to you know just keep your eye on the ball. Benefit risk. Yeah. Okay, we're out of time. We're going to have to hand over to the great team from Eat It. Saw Cam earlier; he was really revved up, so I think he's got a good show coming up. Thank you, Dr. Laura.
2: Thank
1: you, Shane. Dr. Linden, great to have you. In.
2: Thank you,
1: Dr. Ray. Good fun. to see you. I haven't yeah, seen you in a while. Yeah, you've been overseas. So, uh, thanks so much for listening, folks. Remember, science is everywhere. We're going to chat to you again next week, and it's only a couple of weeks away until we're at the Radiothon. So, we're already planning. Actually, I'm lying, but we'll <laughs> start. We'll start planning later today. It's going to be a lot of fun. See who can- we'll get as many of our team in as we can. Until then, have a great Sunday. Thanks for listening to Triple R, and uh, see you in a week. <laughs>
4: This has been a podcast from 3RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out
2: our website at rrr.org.au.